0: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know.
1: Like, we don't know how bikes work.
0: Get out! Come on!
1: We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible.
2: We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to.
0: Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features A16Z Bioid Health general partner Julie Yu in conversation with Dan Rosenthal, a provider network expert who's been a leader both on the payer and the provider side, and who is now an advisory partner for A16Z Bioid Health. Julie and Dan got into the 101 and 201 of provider networks as well as detailed tactical advice for digital health companies looking to enter a network.
1: And so I think that the way to get into the network is to be nimble, to make sure you lead with your value proposition. And, you know, if you know somebody at the payer, the medical director, if you have a relationship or contact the local network contracting team, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get into the network.
2: They also talked about the future and how AI could theoretically completely change the way networks are constructed.
1: And could we create a network that, like you said, is on demand? So could you create a marketplace where you connect patients with providers in a way that would would have all of the same performance characteristics of the networks that we've been talking about, but to do it in a much more modern way that was more customizable And just work better for people.
2: So let's join Dan and Julie as they discuss the present and future of provider networks. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z.
0: We're really fortunate today to have Dan Rosenthal, who has been on both sides of provider networks, both as the CEO of one of the regional plans at United Health Group, which is the largest insurance company in the country. It's a behemoth. And then prior to that, Dan was at Baptist Health in Florida on the provider side, of provider networks um, and so has a really unique purview from being on both sides. So thank you, Dan, for being here with us today and uh, excited to dive into this conversation. Awesome. Well, let's start with the basics. What is a provider network? Why do they exist? Where did they come from? And I think also very keen to hear, do, did you view provider networks fundamentally differently from the plan side versus the provider side? And, and what would be some of those differences?
1: You know, if you think about how you get your health care or how your family gets your health care or if you're running a company how all your people all your employees and all their families get their health care where do they go and you are going to try to organize a collection of of all of those care providers all those access points into a network right i don't want to use the word network to define network but you know a collection. And, and to do that in some kind of a thoughtful way. So that's really what a network is, a provider network. You know, if you're the provider, then you're providing care, not only to the members, but you have a contract with the payer and usually things that work really well with those agreements and things that cause tension, right? And like, how much should we get paid? Uh, what does it take to provide the care? how do i make sure that uh, you know i show up in the directory or that i'm being promoted or marketed the, in the right way how do i protect my brand right and if you're the payer you know then you're trying to think about the totality of your network it's important for you to manage across the entire network you know another difference is the provider really is focusing on providing care to each member to each patient and from the payer the payer is sort of looking at it across a composite, across the entire network.
0: Uh, Let's say that I'm a startup health plan. I'm I'm building an insurance company from scratch. How would I go about starting to build my provider network? How do these networks actually get constructed from the ground
1: up? Who are the people that you intend to serve, right? Who Who are your members gonna be? What services do those people need? Where do they need those services? And what are the ways that they like to engage? So you try to understand that, right? So, for example, let's say that you're building a network and your business is going to be Medicare Advantage, right? Or let's say that your business is going to be focusing on uh, individual individuals who want to buy insurance completely independent from, from their employer, right? Or maybe it's a Medicaid plan, or maybe it's a special needs population. So you start to think about the different populations and what are the health services that they need. And then you say, how do I identify providers of care that meet those needs and and then organize your thinking that way? And then you ultimately are going to say, how am I going to ensure quality? And then also, how do we make sure that it's competitive from a cost perspective? And how do we make sure that it provides people with the kind of experience that you want to be associated with? Do you start to build a network out off of those principles?
0: Give us a sense of scale. Like, if you're a provider, on average, how many different payer contracts would you be negotiating in a given year? And then, on the on the flip side, if you're a health plan of the scale of you know the one that you ran, for instance, uh, how many different providers or provider networks? Like, did you actually have multiple provider networks that comprised the the offering on that side?
1: When I worked at the health system in South Florida, I think we had I don't know 40, 50 different contracts, and then inside of each contract. There were several different product categories and each product category had its own set of rules, its own set of payment terms, and they all have different dates and different nuances. So it can be complicated. If you're a medical group, uh, you probably have about the same kind of situation and it depends on what market you're in. If you're in a rural market, you know where there are not a lot of payers and you probably have fewer agreements, and if you're in a metro market, you know, let's say you're in San Francisco where I live, you probably have quite a few contracts and they're and they're quite complicated. When I was with the payer, when I was at United, we had more than, I think, 75 different networks that we operated. There's probably more now, right? Because it's a lot of customization around what kind of a network serves whatever population, Sometimes you have an employer that wants a specific network, and so you create a specific network around a particular employer. So it's quite a few different networks. And then inside of each network, be thousands and thousands of contracts.
0: Yeah. And therein is, I would say, one of the the, common, very frequent questions that comes up from entrepreneurs who are building uh, sort of digital health provider solutions in this space is, how do I go about getting into a provider network with a payer? And you just mentioned, you know, there's potentially at least 70 different doors one could go through to try to get a contract with one of these networks. How would a digital health provider uh, go about navigating that landscape and which doors are available? uh, Which ones would you prioritize for what reasons, et cetera?
1: The first thing to focus on is really what is your value prop? What What is the value that you bring to the network? And does the person on the other side of that conversation, meaning the payer, do they see value in the same way that you see value? And if they do, then you can have a conversation with them about how can we get into the network? Or sometimes they might be looking to fill a need. And so I think that the way to get into the network is to be nimble, to make sure you lead with your value proposition and You know, if you know somebody at the payer, the medical director, if you have a relationship or contact the local network contracting team, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get into the network.
0: So let's double click on the, the rates negotiation dynamic. So we've also previously talked about what we refer to as the dark art of payer provider contracting. I think a lot of people are always curious about how these rates get negotiated. What advice would you give to digital health companies in terms of, do you just, to your point, go in? adopt rates that are given to you and, you know, just to get in and then kind of work your way up over time after you demonstrate outcomes and, and cost savings and whatnot? Or is it better to sort of optimize for, you know, the rates that you come in with at the beginning, such that you're sort of setting an expectation as to what the value of your service is going to be in the future?
1: As is, is a little bit of both, I know you want to hold out for, let's call it premium rates above market reimbursement level or payment levels because it's going to take a long time and the likelihood of being successful, especially if you want real premium rates is, is not great. And, and I think most of the companies that we're talking about here are, you know, there's a speed factor, right? So you don't want to leave too much money on the table, but if you shoot for the moon, you're going to, you're going to miss too often. So my recommendation would be to, to stay within, let's call it a standard rate zone, right? And I think that, you know, especially as, you know, the marketplace around payment rates begins to get more and more transparent, it's becoming a little bit clearer as to what the standard payment zones are. And then maybe to add the value prop so that you think about the extra compensation that you would get that would drive the premium component of the rate make that be driven off of your value prop that you deliver. And that sort of brings you more into like a uh, value-based care kind of an arrangement, but that may come second, right? Especially if you're if you're a young company and you're just trying to establish yourself, you're trying to prove your value, you're trying to prove that you can do it at scale and you're trying to prove that you can do it in a way that really makes a lot of sense for the, for the plan sponsor and for the people in the plan think that once you've established that then you can come back and talk about how do we add incremental value based components to it and and pick up that way
0: we've seen you know some strategies that digital health companies have taken where they piggyback on health system contracts so one medical you know i think famously has been an example of doing this what's your opinion of that what what are the pros and cons that you would guide digital health companies to consider if they are exploring that path
1: Well, it's definitely a a viable strategy if you can do it. You just have to be willing to accept the terms and conditions associated with that contract. When I was on the payer side, I wasn't that crazy about that kind of an approach, right? Because, you know, you wind up paying maybe a little bit more than what you think you should pay because somebody has attached themselves to a bigger contract. So... I think from the provider side, the digital health company side, it's a viable strategy and it's something to explore, right? It it may be hard to unwind yourself from that at some point if you ever want to sort of stand more on your own. And from the payer side, I think it's just recognized that it's just part of the way the world works these days.
0: And then there's the reverse, which is if I'm a health plan, I can also lease network from other existing health plans. Why would I do that? What are the merits of Leasing a network versus building my own from scratch.
1: Yeah. So sometimes you do both. Sometimes you build your own from scratch, and then you lease a network, which you know in 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 the business is called a wrap, right? So how do you wrap a bigger network around your network in order to close off gaps that you might have? If you're starting up, if you're a brand new health plan, right? Then you know it's expensive and time consuming to create your own network. And you may not have time to do that. You may want to lease someone else's network to give you speed to market. And ultimately, you probably are going to want to build your own network. TPAs, for example, third-party administrators that administer self-funded benefit plans for employers, you know, many of them lease a whole slew of different networks. And then they blend those networks together in ways that meet the needs of their employer customers. And so it just depends really on what your objectives are.
0: And we've seen that there are, you know, there's there's some tactical trade-offs to leasing as well in terms of visibility into, you know, the granularity of those individual contracts and whatnot. Let's move to Network 201 and get into some of the more complicated topics about networks. So one of the, you know, sort of evolving dimensions of healthcare is what is a provider, right? So we have, we already mentioned virtual providers, there's, evolving scope of practice with existing providers like nurses and pharmacists. We've seen a lot of expansion of scope in terms of the types of services that they're taking up. How has that impacted the way that provider networks get designed? Are you seeing examples of sort of emerging pockets of new types of providers that come in and out of these provider network designs?
1: There, the whole area about virtual care is exploding. And so how do we make sure that that network that we're building is keeping up with that. If you were responsible for a network, you would wanna make sure that in order to stay competitive, this concept of what is a competitive network is is dynamic. And it's very important because there are other plan sponsors, there are other payers that are out there competing with you. And so you need to make sure that your network is competitive. And so if, if the people are wanting to get their healthcare either from a particular provider or through a particular avenue, like virtual, then you're going to need to make sure that that your network includes that.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing some payers go down the path of building even digital health formularies, which is kind of an interesting manifestation of almost like a carve-out of, of virtual care that is an add-on an add to um, the more traditional network definition And maybe along those lines, Dan, you know, this notion of carve-out, I think, is kind of an esoteric concept in the provider network universe as well. What are some of the areas that tend to be carved out and what constitutes a type of sub-network that you think is conducive to being carved out versus just being considered part of the core network?
1: Usually a carve-out is around a type of service or a component of the service, let's say like an implantable device or a high-cost drug that is carved out, meaning it's not part of the basic agreement, and it might be treated differently inside of an agreement, or the way you're talking about it, Julie, is you can create a whole different network. You know, two classic examples. You know, one is how you receive your pharmacy benefit different from your medical benefit. In a way, the pharmacy is carved out from the medical agreements, you know, or uh, behavioral health, right? So, classically, that behavioral health was a carve-out, meaning that people bought a behavioral health arrangement separate from their medical. And, of course, now, you know, we all have come to the realization that those need to be integrated, right, and and to treat people as a whole and not treat them separately. So that's sort of what a carve-out is. So it's designed to sort of provide access to specialized care or to create insulation around... Uh, specialized risk that should be managed differently.
0: A kind of a comparable wave that we saw over the last, you know, decade or so, which um, unfortunately I think has has come to be a little bit of a bad word is the concept of narrow networks. With the rise of value based care, you're starting to see, you know, more more contouring of these kind of narrow networks or high performance networks, I think, as they're called now, um, in a more euphemistic fashion. What's kind of the the
1: future of that concept? A narrow network is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's a network that is smaller than the broad network. So from end to end, let's call it across an episode or across the totality of care that a population gets, you can begin to measure. And then you wind up having a network that comprises the providers that are performing at a higher level and the providers that are not performing at a higher level are out of that network you typically able to offer lower cost and a stronger experience at the same or better quality. And so why? who wouldn't want that? Most people would want that, except when they want to go to someone who's not in that network and then they don't like that. And so that's sort of the downside of a narrow network is when people get care or want to get care from outside of the network and they're told, no, you can't do that. That's sort of the downside of a narrow network, mm-hmm. and so the real question is, how do you make a narrow network feel like a broad network?
0: Um, let's use that to shift gears into what does the future of provider networks look like? So you mentioned the transparency laws; that's probably one of the obvious areas that people are wondering, like what will what will that what the impact on provider networks be in the next five years? How would you articulate your your bear case and your bull case for? how the new price transparency laws will impact the way that provider networks get both designed as well as negotiated and and contoured in the way that you just described.
1: Yeah, so I guess my bare case is that the data just becomes so big and so unwieldy that it just turns into like a sea of meaningless stuff and it just falls on its face. My version of what's going to happen is going to be that the data will become more and more mature, that there'll be less and less noise associated with the data, that there'll be more and more compliance associated with it. And the data that we're talking about is all those contracts that I talked about, you know, earlier, you know, whatever, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of contracts, all the different rates, right, that that information gets put into a massive database and then it gets digested and organized in a way where you can look at episode cost. You can look at risk-adjusted expectations around what different things are gonna cost, either on a unit basis, on an episode basis, or across a population. And people will be able to be much smarter about managing costs. And there'll be less variability in the marketplace. I mean, today, I think that the average person would just be shocked at the amount of variation that there is you know for for any service. And mm-hmm. I think that that variation will come down a little bit, will collapse. It will improve the trust of the system, and it's going to make the system work a lot better.
0: Another version of what people talk about uh, with regards to the availability of this price transparency data is this notion of networkless health insurance products, where because you know a priori, you know a range of of pricing uh, that could be, applicable to a given set of services, you can use that data to do sort of on-demand or ad hoc negotiation with providers, um, with the value proposition to the provider being that, you know, we'll guarantee you a price on the spot. So there's no revenue cycle component. You don't have to file a claim. You just get paid in real time, essentially. But at the absence of sort of uh, long-term predictability on, you know, the stream of revenue that's coming into your practice, because each negotiation might be ad hoc or atomized, Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: It's definitely something worth shooting for. You know, these networks that we've been talking about, you know, they're designed to meet the average needs of a population. And so it's not designed for you. And so that's the disconnect. And could we create a network that, like you said, is on demand? So could you create a marketplace where you connect patients with providers in a way that would would have all of the same performance characteristics of the networks that we've been talking about, but to do it in a much more modern way that was more customizable and just worked better for people. It's a very exciting opportunity, but it is going to take a much more modern technology approach to be able to do it at scale, right? Mm-hmm. So think about if you call you know, your friend. Who is in the healthcare business, or your doctor? They can they can do this for you on a one off basis now, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how do you do it at scale across an entire region or across an entire country for a subset of people, like like everyone that's in Medicare Advantage, right, or everyone that get, buys their insurance through a public exchange, or everyone that gets their insurance from an employer. How how can we accomplish it for that size of a population?
0: So, last question, Dan. Thinking super big and super crazy, what additional predictions do you have about you know future ways that provider networks might evolve in our industry?
1: I'm sort of enamored with the whole marketplace idea. You could have a marketplace that operated in a very technology first way that connected patients, families, plan sponsors, providers in a way that doesn't exist today. It provided very high quality. It made sure that you were were able and willing and uh, willing to accept the costs associated with it. And that you were also able to expect and to get the right experience. And I think that there's a whole new modern approach to it that would sort of make networks as we know it obsolete in terms of how they operate and how they're built with new technology that, you know, maybe maybe an AI-driven approach, you'd be able to completely disrupt those networks. And you think about the amount of cost associated with operating cost, the amount of, of burden that the defects in the network place on the healthcare system. If you could get it to operate in a more effective way, and just eliminate all the back and forth. Or, you know, there's so many disconnects in the way the current networks work that if we could figure out how to make them work in a more technology-driven way that automated away those defects, and then it would happen faster and faster and faster, and then maybe ultimately we would get to the network of one concept that we just talked about.
0: Uh, You know, what you're describing echoes um, something that we had written about previously around why are there not more marketplaces in healthcare? And we sort of highlighted the fact that, you know, most intermediary models that do exist in the healthcare industry today are more broker type models. And, you know, health insurance is a prime example of this, where, you know, you have these proprietary networks that you maintain, but there's very little that's done to actually help consumers find the right provider, book appointments, pay for the services, et cetera, as you're describing. And that's, those are all we agree wholeheartedly that those are opportunities for technology to play a meaningful role in really upgrading the experience around these provider networks. So with that, we'll end here. Dan, thank you so much for your comments and and, um, the inspiring ideas about how entrepreneurs can be improving and affecting the opportunity around provider networks in our industry.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, Julie. And it was fun to have the conversation. I look forward to more.
2: Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld at A16Z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see A16Z.com disclosures.